Hello, this is Derek Duncan. We're back with episode 33 of the Feed the Ball podcast. Today, I'm speaking with architect Tom McKenzie. Tom McKenzie is one half of the internationally renowned golf design partnership of McKenzie and Ebert. Since they branded their company in 2005, McKinsey and Martin Ebert have become one of the most admired design and renovation firms in the UK, Ireland, and Europe. They both began their careers as associate designers for Donald Steele, the renowned British architect, writer, and all-around sage. The experience of working on projects across the globe for Steele, including a number of courses in the United States and Canada, helped form McKinsey's view that golf design should have the lightest possible touch on the earth, and that holes should emphasize foremost what nature presents. That philosophy has become especially relevant in the last decade, as McKenzie and Ebert have consulted and made adjustments for seven of the ten Open Championship Rota courses. This includes a fairly major reworking of holds at Royal Portrush in Northern Ireland, where the 2019 Open will be played, and a comprehensive remodel of numerous holes at Turnberry. His career in golf, as well as an impressionable time spent living in Dornoch during his youth, has given McKenzie an inestimable respect for the links and great natural sites, and the importance and imperative of preserving their character. Nowhere was this more demonstrable, or rewarding, than at Askernish, located on the Outer Hebrides off the northwest coast of Scotland. The 18 holes there, originally designed by old Tom Morris, had been abandoned and left to nature sometime in the early to mid-1900s. Rumors of the quality and unique potential of these lost lynx holes circulated for a few decades before McKinsey and Ebert were commissioned, prior to 2008, to reconstruct the course using late 19th century methods and agronomical practices. Askernish today is a kind of temple, a Rosetta Stone of preserved golf history. Tom and I spoke the day after the resounding European victory in the Ryder Cup played outside of Paris at Le Golf National. By now you've undoubtedly been overwhelmed by the post-match blow-by-blow, but we begin the talk with McKenzie's views on the golf course and his thoughts about the way the course was set up and how it challenged the players. We also got into the state of golf in Europe and Great Britain and compared notes on how golf development on each continent evolved positive-negative trends that continue to drive current ideas in economics. It was illuminating to get the Scottish architect's perspective on where we are and where we're going in contemporary golf. So enjoy my talk with Tom McKenzie. You just got back from the Ryder Cup. Were you there all three days? Uh, yes, I left. Sadly, I left just before the, the absolute climax yesterday, but uh, I, I really needed to get back last night. So uh, well, It was a bit of a foregone uh, conclusion yeah. at that point, I believe. Uh, it was still, you know, in the you know, in the balance, I think really, I think it was a bit closer than it looked. Oh, <laughs> that's not the that's not what everybody else is saying. I think most people are saying it was a, a good old fashioned ass kicking. Uh, well, I suppose that's how it turned out, wasn't yeah. it? But, um, yeah. What was the feeling there on the grounds? Was there? It must have been uh, quite riotous, and the, the feeling of that Europe had a lot of momentum. I think there was sort of stunned shock more, more than anything. It, uh, yeah, I think most Europeans that I knew were you know, not entirely optimistic about our prospects, um, and the result came as a bit of a surprise, really. I, mean, uh, you know, I think we all thought that the the American camp, the, you know, the team spirit was strong and morale was high and everything, but you know, clearly you know, all wasn't well in the camp, really. A couple of guys really out of form, and um, and obviously Patrick Reed's been um, <laughs> doing something in the background, which I wasn't aware of. 
Yeah, I th- which kind kind of helps. Really. I think so. That a lot of that is now just now coming to light about you know Captain America and how unhappy he might have been. Mm. Yeah, and um, yeah, he seems to. Yeah, always. I always thought that he sort of shrugged off the fact that uh, he, he may not be the most popular man in the world, but yeah, clearly it does rankle. Yeah, he has it. feelings too. <laughs> Yeah. Well, what did you think? What did you think of the golf course? I, I'm sure you're pretty familiar with it. They play the European uh, Tour event there every year since '91. Um, just general mm. thoughts on the Albatross course. Well, the European Institute of Golf Course Architects are going there in April to play, and uh, I have to say that I'm I'm quaking in my boots. <laughs> I would be too. <laughs> <laughs> so you haven't you've not been you haven't played there before I take it. This will be the first time. I haven't. No, I haven't been there before either. No. Have you thought about no, just I'm skipping not, that event altogether? <laughs> no, I think I want to do it just to go for the experience, really. But um, yeah, the actual as a as a venue for the Ryder Cup, I thought it was you know, fantastic. There's somewhere to to watch and feel as if you're part of it. It's absolutely brilliant. That's um, great. Yeah, it certainly yeah. is the type of golf course that is. I would. Just, I. I think you'd agree. It's probably on the the opposite end of the spectrum of the the kind of work that that you and Martin do and would like to do. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, but as a a viewing venue and a, a spectacle for watching, you know, what is basically show business, isn't it? It's it's absolutely absolutely brilliant. Um, I've been to. I've been to Sawgrass, and but you know this is sort of without the design finesse, perhaps it's a Sawgrass on steroids. Um, you know, the, the the viewing capacity they could take twice as many people, and you'd still see. It's, you know, it's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, as a as a golf course architect, at, at some points in time, you're going to have to consider how the world's best players are going to play your golf course. Now, when you work on the Lynx courses, you know, that's a whole different, different animal. This golf course was completely manufactured and everything was, was uh, a theoretical concern and anything could be done with it. So, but putting that hat on about as a venue for world-class players, did you think this setup or this style of golf course, is it, is it a good setup or a good way to challenge the world's best players? I said it's probably on the on the extreme end of the scale. I certainly tested out how well and accurately players could hit it, and it wasn't so severe that they never took drivers. So yeah, I think it was a it was an interesting spectacle, but yeah, desperately severe if you made the slightest error. Um, whether the punishment was in proportion to the crime, sometimes. Yeah. Very often it wasn't, but um, it certainly that's why Molinari won five out of five because he just has that ability to hit it straight down the middle, you know, a, a very respectable distance. Do you think in your world is is growing rough like that? Is that is that necessary to challenge tour level players, or you know, is that kind of a cop out? How do I, what's your feeling on you know protecting a golf course through rough? Well, when when you have the really severe um, U.S. Open courses or the likes of Carnoustie, when it when the rough was really really long, I think it just becomes dull, and I don't think it really rewards the best players. Um, so I think you know, it, it it can become 
too severe, um, too, and then it just becomes too, too samey. Uh, your players, I, I, personally, I'm not really interested in watching 24 under winning every week or 20 under winning every week. You know, I want birdies to actually mean something rather than it just being a birdie fest. But similarly, you know, people winning four over wouldn't be much fun. Although, you, know, you look at the, the scores, they were still coming in with subpar scores. And the Albatross course, and which I thought was was truly remarkable. And you look at Justin Thomas's drive down the last. I mean, he, even even Rory must have been th- gulping when after he hit it. Was it three hundred and twenty oh, yards yeah. into a fifteen yard wide that fairway? Took some guts. I, mean, I would have put my house on Rory not hitting the fairway then. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, Tom, I'm, we're not going to. I'm not going to spend this, all of our time together talking about tour players and the, the you know championship level golf. But I am curious: is in your opinion, is there a, a better way? Is there a, is there? A, can you even challenge the top players anymore? I mean, what's the recipe for? What's the mix for finding that balance between rewarding precision but also uh, rewarding creative, strategic play without setting up a golf course that's too easy? Do you have a, a theory on that or a, or an idea of? the type of course that it would ideally suit today's best players or challenge them, I should say. Making them think is still you know, a, a big priority. Um, and there has to be a severity of punishment if they don't pull off the shot or if they don't think enough. Um, so you know, drive bunkering rough up to a point um, but green surrounds, I think, and green contouring is still you know, the, the, the greatest protection. You look at you look at Augusta. I mean, it's 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 all about the greens. Perhaps not quite as much about what goes on around the greens because of the the nature of the grass. But um, you know, certainly encouraging different types of recovery and and uh, being able to use the green surrounds as a as a defence tool is very important. Rather than just making everybody reach for the for the lob wedges, and, and you then have to have the, the green surfaces, so that if you're missing greens on the wrong side, there's a, a definite punishment. But um, it's, it's very tough, and if you're trying to get it so that I mean, the reason I'm quaking in my boots and I'm a, a reasonable player is that you know I know that most of the people going along are probably going to take six hours to get round and may not have a big enough bag to take enough balls with them. Right. Um, you know, if you, if you're trying to test the best players the most, then the courses essentially become unplayable for mere mortals and, and a, a thoroughly miserable experience as well. Does a place like the Le golf national, does it, I mean, I, I'm assuming that it, it it makes it needs to cater to golfers. It's got several golf courses there, and and people play there all year round. It's not just only a tournament venue. Does is it? I guess what I'm I'm, I'm wondering, you know, is that it seems like like you're saying like a dreadful place. Like who would want to want to go play there? But I guess you know if it's if it's host tournament, there's an element of the golfing public who are attracted to going and playing places that are famous and and venues where you know the world's best players compete yeah i guess that's enough to give that place business i didn't didn't say it was a dreadful place at all i'm obviously sort of i'm looking forward to it but i know that i'm not going to be coming in (laughs) probably within 10 shots of my handicap and very few people will apart from the the very best players um you know it's just a it's a a very severe 
a severe test and the, the margins for error. I mean, okay, I'm assuming that the first cut of rough will be widened out so that um, you know, there's, there's much broader semi-rough. But even then, you know, it, it will still be an extremely difficult test. Right. And you know, you know, I think probably what I'm saying is I wouldn't want to play there every day of the week. <laughs> year in, year out. And um, yeah, we're going there in April and I'm just thinking, well, I hope the weather's nice. <laughs> I guess the same, like you mentioned it, I guess could same could be said for the stadium course at Sawgrass. It's It can be a brutalizing course as well for the resort player, uh, you know, and mm. if you move up to a short tee, most people, you know, can get around it without losing all of their golf balls. <laughs> but mm. um, Oh, and you go along knowing that's going to be the case, and there's almost sort of a badge of honor by how light is your bag when you finish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you start, start uh, yeah, keeping score by lost golf balls. Yeah, but I'm not sure that you would, if you were going on a, a golfing vacation, I don't think you would choose to play there seven days for, you know, each day for the entire week. Yeah. <laughs> you want to go and have a bit more, a bit of light relief in other places. Would you ever be interested in, in taking a, a pro, taking on a project like that? Let's say, let's say a developer came to you and said, we want to build a golf course, you know, that's, it's going to have to be completely manufactured. Here's a flat piece of ground and we want you to make it uh, a tournament venue you know so you know you're going to have to build all the features you're going to have to you know conceptualize on paper or from your mind everything that's going to be laid out and built does that does that kind of project intrigue you or would you pass on something like that i, I think i don't think there's a golf course architect on earth that would turn that down yeah, i think it would be just such a an, an amazing experience and you know, the, the proviso being so long as they want to do it properly. Yeah. And what do you mean by properly? Is, well, so I mean, I, I was privileged in that I was able to get out sort of behind the ropes on Saturday evening um, with the greenkeeping team and you know, met quite a few of the greenkeepers and, and saw what they were doing and, and learning about how they were treating all the greens differently to try and get as much consistency as possible. And you know, some were being given feeds at the start of the week and others weren't being rolled and others were being double cut and to try and get them all so that they had exactly the same pace. So you know, what you've got to do to try and you know, minimize that is get all of the technical details as close as you possibly can get. And, and when you're pushing things to the edge as you are for a major, major event like that, uh, that's what the people at the, at the coalface have to do if you haven't got the details right. And I'm not saying that it wasn't built properly at the time, but um, you know, time has moved on since it was originally built. And you know, everyone knows a lot more about how to create consistent conditions. And you have to have consistent um, soils and growing medium and irrigation and, and you know, everything to get uh, those conditions exactly as the players want them going back to the concept of of creating a course on a flat piece of ground from scratch is that every architect's dream to is that a, is that in a situation where you can maybe the one situation where you have complete control and and it's your opportunity to get all of your golf thoughts your strategic thoughts your shaping thoughts into the ground you know from a blank canvas is that is that kind of the ultimate opportunity for an architect uh, 
it would be close to it, but I think you, know, you I, I think you would want an absolutely ideal site and to do something world class with you know as light a touch as you could possibly get away with. That would be my ideal. Um, but doing you know, being allowed to create something from scratch and not to, you know, to basically indulge and do whatever. You, you want to do to create the best course that you can artificially is is you know, be just a great fun thing to do yeah there's always the kind of the the question is like what's a greater accomplishment you know taking a, a swamp like pete Dye had at, at pontevedra and turning it into you know one of the most famous courses in the world that that, that operates and succeeds on a variety of levels you know it on a scale of one to ten it's it's maybe like an eight or as I was talking to uh, Dave Axland, who works with Bill Core recently, and he said he thought it was a greater feat to take a site that's a nine and turn it into a nine and a half because you know you could easily screw it up. So, what, I mean, have you? Where, where do you think? What would you, is like sort of like the greater accomplishment or the greater challenge working with a truly truly elite site or or taking a, a crap site and turning it into something great? I think it's very hard to be disciplined enough to to do as little as possible. So I think that that's that's very difficult. Turning a crap site into a great course might well be impossible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the the greatest courses aren't ones that have been turned upside down twice and put back together again. They're, they're the ones with the natural beauty and so on. But I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but uh, I think it's it's harder to be really disciplined and create you know the, the ultimate course on a great site. I think it's, you know, it's a lot easier to screw it up by doing too much. Right. Yeah. As far as new golf course construction, what's the what's the best site that you've had an opportunity to work on? The best pure natural site. Probably the site in Abaco in the Bahamas. Yeah, certainly a uh, <laughs> a world class setting. Yeah, so, I, mean, I was there from the very first day that um, they, they saw the site. It was just it was raw, sort of scrub basically, and uh, you had to see it through from that stage to opening up and. Being played by everybody was, yeah, I think a, an interesting experience, and yeah, I suppose it. Yeah, if there was a frustration, it was there was some limitations on how much you could get to see the sea, but um, but yeah, there's many many seaside courses where you don't see the sea hardly at all. And you you were an associate with Donald Steele at that time. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, how much work did you have to do on that on that property? Uh, in what respect? In Ab- I mean, did you were there natural land formations that you could work with, or did you have to? to yeah, I know you had you just mentioned you had to clear a lot, but did you have to to create a lot of shaping throughout the course and throughout the fairways? Not really. No. Um, the, as you got out towards the sort of far end, the, there was a, a, a lot more. Sort of, not huge dunes, but sort of ridges that were you know, very suited for for running fairways between and setting tees on top of um, the areas of, of the 
the first and the the fourteenth it started to get a lot flatter. There was much less, so there was much less going on. So there was more um, creation going on there. But we were you know, really, really keen to make sure that any reshaping that was done looked like it. The, all of the other areas. And so we sort of studied that topography and then really tried to echo it on those lower holes. Um, which I'd forgotten to silence. Um, yeah, so you know, we, we tried we tried not to overwork it really and, and on, on the flatter ground, you know, the holes are lower profile um, but quite strongly bunkered. Um, but we didn't want to, you know, make them look contrived was it challenging in that you know uh caribbean setting to get the turf conditions appropriate so you could play the ball along the ground i think with all um warm season grasses that's a challenge i think it, since we did that course well it was a very salty environment anyway so we had very little choice other than to use the seashore pospalum mm -hmm. I think since then the, some of the, the zoysias have come along, which are much sort of tighter and more fine leaved. Um, the ones that Gil Hans used at the Olympic on the Olympic course in Rio, for instance, I haven't seen them, but I gather they are a lot sort of tighter. Um, but yeah, we we worked hard to find that what we felt were the best cultivars of Pospalum, so that you could play the ball along the ground as much as possible. Speaking of playing the ball along the ground, you spent a portion of your, I think it was your teenage years in Dornoch. Uh, when you, tell me about that living in Dornoch and, and at that point in your life. And I'm imagining that, you know, once you go there, like it's hard to come back. Like that, that style of golf and, and that kind of purity of golf and that environment, that's going to have a major influence on how you view the game and, and how you view golf course architecture. Um, yeah, I mean, I've quite happy to admit it's my, my spiritual home and you know, I go back whenever I get the chance to and thankfully my family all play and uh, you know, I'm always they're happy to go back too so uh, you know, we make a, at least one an annual pilgrimage back up there and you know, I, I just love going up and pitting myself against it in, in sort of competition circumstances in the in, in the Carnegie Shield particularly that's sort of my the sort of the big highlight and it sort of goes back and sort of recharges my creative batteries. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and the, yeah, I, I, I know all courses have their fans and their detractors, but uh, yeah, I still love Dornoch for its sort of subtlety and the way that my favourite holes have changed, you know, markedly over the decades that I've been going there. And just the, the number of the, the different types of shots and the, the placement that's required for different pin positions and so on. So, uh, yeah, that's, I think it's still inspirational for me. Right. How, how have the holes changed over the years, just through natural evolution, or has, have, has work been done? Oh, I see. No, no. What I'm saying is my opinions of holes have changed. Ah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, holes have sort of snuck up on me and suddenly you, you so you it takes a long time to realize the subtlety that's involved in them um the, the 12th would be an example of a par five just the the angling of the green and the 
big hump that guards the front left corner of the green and, and there's a swale beyond it and you know, just how important placement is you know if you are left with your second shot you know you've got to pull pull the rabbit out of the hat to mm-hmm. you know even to walk off with the par you, you certainly would be hard hard pressed mm-hmm. to make a birdie from the from the left side very often just because of the nature of the green i think that's but you know, when i first went up there you know, the first few times I played, I think I would struggle to remember it really. But sort of gradually over the years, you just realise just what a wonderful hole it is, and it's not. Because <laughs> I seem to bogey it more often than I par it these days. But uh, <laughs> I think it's sort of it's it's got it's got the better of me strategically. I think. Well, those are the those are the kind of holes that that you do develop respect for, you know, a hole that you dominate or that you own, you know, is probably, you take it for granted. It's the challenge. That's mm. what golf is, right? And it's, it's the, the mystifying quality of how it can change and your score can change in the way you approach it day to day. It's never constant. Mm. Yeah. I think that the, the scale of the greens there, back left to front, right on the 12th, and you know, they're two just completely different holes as well. So, I think that's a luxury that, that the Lynx courses with big greens have that, you know, courses with the, this is very small greens like Brookline or something, you perhaps don't have that luxury. So how did you meet Martin Ebert, your design partner? Uh, he was actually at Cambridge with my brother and they were on the golf team together. And um, I'd, I'd met him a few times and so met up with my brother in Cambridge and had actually um, met up with my brother when they were on a golf tour one summer and you know, met him then. Um, and I'd started with Donald Steele and we were well, not short of work, shall we say, and we were actively looking for somebody. So my brother suggested why not get in touch with him because he's got you know, a real sort of passion for the game and your creativity that's all sort of history since then so you you got him the job with steel well that's maybe slightly overstating the case but uh, <laughs> you, you made the introductions and I made the introductions yeah, yeah. alright so he owes you <laughs> do you do you have to do you ever remind him of that uh, we see each other so rarely <laughs> <laughs> So when was that? Was that like the? Well, and if my brother's around, we always get together, and it's just this is a a long-standing friendship. Yeah, yeah, I bet you have some stories. Hmm. Yeah, my brother always used he he lived in St Andrews until a few years ago. He's a physicist, and whenever Martin was up in St Andrews playing in the autumn medal or the spring medal or something, he'd always go out and um, you know, generally ruin his round by by watching him. Oh. <laughs> did he he had that kind of effect on him? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what did he think it was going to happen? <laughs> I don't know. He just said so every time every time you turn up, you know, I, I seem to make bogeys. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. You should, let's get some money on that game and we'll have your, your brother come out right at the appropriate time. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's... I think he, He's caddied for him a couple of times as well, but uh, he lives in Germany now, unfortunately. So, but, yeah. Wow. So you joined on with, with Donald Steele. At, when was that, the late 80s? 89, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. 
and Martin was the year after, and then we set up Mackenzie Ebert in 2005. Yeah. That was different, different climate in 1989, isn't it? Or I, I'm assuming that. Maybe I'm wrong. I know in the United States, that was, you know, really the in the middle and the launching point of the construction boom. And, you know, everybody had, you know, a dozen or more projects going on, it seemed like. What was it like in the UK at that time? It was much the same. It was... The planning sort of restrictions that had sort of prevented courses from being built were were sort of eased, and you know it was just there were just so many courses being built, and there was a real pent up demand as well. You know, any sort of established club would have had a, a waiting list of you know, two or three years even, um, and so these you know, people were just building courses, and and they were they were busy initially. But then, you know, it, the market sort of saturated by the middle of the 90s and it's really sort of struggled ever since, you know, particularly the, the sort of the, the lower end market courses have really sort of, sort of acted as a bit of a, an anchor you know, holding things back or a drag rather than an anchor. Mm-hmm. So it, <laughs> you... You guys, not you particularly, but we're overbuilding just the way we were in America. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, I think there was a sort of a loss of perspective over what what does the market actually need and does it make sense to build a course here when it's, when, when there's three other courses within X number of miles and are there going to be enough golfers to feed them all? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is that in some cases, you know, there very definitely wasn't and it didn't make sense to, to build that course there. But people still plowed on ahead and went bust and then somebody else bought it and then probably went bust and somebody else bought it and ran it on a shoestring. And now seeing you know, quite a few of those courses just disappearing. Yeah, it sounds familiar. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's not happening as aggressively as in the States, I don't think. But no, I'm not freaked out about it at all. I think it's exactly what needs to happen. And I'm sort of slightly bemused at why the market seems to respond so slowly in golf. There doesn't seem to be as much of a, a divergence between the top end and the bottom end in, term, in price terms, particularly in the UK. Mm. I think there's much more of a difference in the states between the the high and the low. Yeah, well, uh, lo- the low end is I don't I'm not sure how to how to quite to categorize it, but there's there's not much of a low end. I mean, you have a lot of public courses that don't do great business and they're suffering and municipalities are having a hard time funding municipal or county courses. And then you actually, I'm not even sure where golf seems to only be healthy, at least in the United States, if on the high end private club level and some, you know, high end resort destinations. I'm not sure where, you know, here and there, there's a good public run golf course. But for the most part, that's where the hemorrhaging is, is in kind of public middle range and low end golf. Yeah, but there's still there's still scope for well-run courses of that type it's just the there's too many of them um, 
So yeah, in in the United States during that period of you know the eighties and nineties, I think we really got in trouble because we more than previously had attached you know golf toward real estate developments and and other uh, endeavors and financial projects that didn't really have to do with golf. They used golf as an accessory or as a selling point to to move a different product. And you know, and, Mm. and then when the recessions come or you know, whatever there's a reaction in the market or the consumer market, those courses are the first to suffer because they're not, they weren't built to be golf courses necessarily. They were accoutrements to other, other things. Uh, did, did you do that in the UK? Is that something that was going on there as well? Not as much because there was, it was much, much harder to get residential developments in, in rural areas, um, alongside courses. There's one or two examples, um, but yeah, certainly across the across Europe, there are many examples where that's the case. And in, in Eastern Europe, there are many, many examples of, of yeah, unsuitable courses being built with lots and lots of houses around, and the houses get sold, sold off, and then um, the, the golf goes belly up because it was never really considered how they were going to feed the market to to pay the running costs and. The developer is happy because he sold the houses and then doesn't really have too much worry about what's going to happen to the golf afterwards because he's got his money out of it, um, which is maybe a familiar story to what oh, you're for describing. Sure. Yeah, that's the whole that's the whole kit and caboodle right there. In mm. in England and Scotland and Ireland, as far as you know, like is there a is there a concern about? golf being in trouble you know rounds down participation low because we we seem to make a we make a big deal about that over here all the organizations are are worried about depressed play and and we've talked about the economic problems that that golf has is that uh, is that something that you're experiencing as well uh yes i think it is not not as severe i think is 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 discussed i think it's there are so many sort of privately or, or members, clubs owned by members that are happy just to be sort of plodding along. But certainly, the you know, I suppose much as you described it, the upper half of the market seems to be doing absolutely fine. It's just that as you get down to yeah, beyond the middle, then it becomes much more of a struggle. And, and you know, getting people to play and getting people to take up the game, I think, seems to be hard with so many competing things and you know, looking at the number of people that go out cycling, for instance, compared to the, the, the new golfers, you know, somehow or another, cycling sort of stolen the the thunder of, of golf. But, um, I still have a feeling that's a more of a temporary effect than a permanent effect, but... Um, middle-aged men in lycra cycling around I have a feeling they'll be back into their Pringle and Tarsiers not too I hope <laughs> so too long time. Yeah. I really hope so I don't want to see it no, I don't want to see I those, those see guys on bikes no no <laughs> you know so do you think that that golf in general should should try to address the problem of, of low participation or, or should, or is it just a matter? Would it be best served to just ride out the wave and and assume that the, the actual game, playing the game of golf, is attractive enough that eventually you know the market will level out and and people will come to golf if you just present it in a in a good way? Or do we need to go out of our way to 
uh, promote golf in different in different fashions. But I've talked to my my boys about this, and they both play golf. But How old are one they? One of them, particular, eighteen and twenty. Okay. And the younger lad, in particular, was really keen in you know, on mountain biking and, and cycling as well. And I think what cycling has been able to do is certainly there's a, an app over here. I think it's called Strava, um, and the new. I think there's another one specifically for mountain biking where you, you can go off and find a route that no one's done before and you can record it and you're then king of the mountain on that route and then someone else, you, 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 your pals can see what you've done, they can go and find where it is and then try and do it so that you, you can interact with your friends without actually going out and doing it. And you know, I think golf sort of fallen behind a little bit in terms of you know, it's, it's probably maybe a bit too long on tradition and not sure, you know, a bit short on innovation. And, you know, there's, I suspect that what needs to happen is a bit of sort of general loosening up about using technology to better effect and you know, not being worried about eroding traditional standards in a way that, you know, you know, I'm unashamedly a traditionalist, but you know, I think maybe the time has come where we do need to sort of have something. You don't have to say no, no phones anywhere on club premises, and <laughs> except in the case of a death. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I think we're pushing water uphill to try and stop people from using their phones at golf clubs. You know, that's just, it's just fantasy land. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's a sort of a case of where golf's got to try and do it. And I think it is trying with the certainly the European Tour with their six-hole six competitions and having, I can't remember what the tournament was, where they had the players on, on the, so they had to play. On the shot, shot clock. And, yeah, within 45 seconds. They should oh, have, my God. They should how, ha how did they manage it? Yeah. Well, they, that, that, they should put that on every golf course in the world they should have some system or a shot clock you know just like attached to your bag or you know on the, on the fairway that's that would do more to promote the game of golf than anything just quicker play well, i choose to play at a club where you can only play two balls for that very reason i'm mm -hmm. really not sure that i would i would want to play golf if it took me four and a half hours every time i went out yeah, you know, in America, no, in America, that's kind of a, you know, a lot of clubs shoot for a four and a half hour round. Mm. I, I, you know, <laughs> I, I have a friend who plays at a club here and where I live, and and it's a really nice high end club, and I get invited there sometimes. But they, if you play in four and a half hours, that's a that's a good quick round for them. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a miracle anybody plays at that pace. You know, who can afford the yeah. time? Yeah. Well. Yeah. It's not, it's not my bike, really. I don't mind every now and then. But, uh, I know. Well, I'm very, I'm very much in the Walter Hagen. If you're going to miss it, miss it quick. I love that's the best phrase in golf. Miss him quick. You know, in America, we have this kind of, I don't, I shouldn't say all of us, but I think there is a prevailing romanticized view of golf in the UK that, it, you know, of course, it's obviously not all links golf, but there, we, we tend to think of golf in your country as uh, a more pure sport. You know, more people walk. You play quickly, as you're referring to. You have a club where you play a two-ball match, which doesn't hardly ever exist here. Is is that? Are we right in in looking toward the UK and and seeing mostly what's right about golf, especially from the American perspective? That's a no. 
I think it's much over over oversimplification. I think the the is televised golf is is much of the issue where you see players just spending because it's their job and they're playing for millions of dollars and pounds and euros. You're not going to rush, but it it just so trickles into everyday golf that you've got to line up putts from 12 different directions and overanalyze absolutely everything. Um, I think that's the, everywhere, everywhere you go, that's the, that's the issue, I think. And the, the certain clubs are just going right, you you join on the basis that you, you want to play quickly and it's, it sort of becomes institutionalized quick play rather than institu- institutionalized slow play. I think a lot depends as well on the um, the, the setup of the course as well, and the, the layout of the course. That the likes of the club where I play, it would be deemed to be unusually dangerous if you applied modern standards to it. Of course, it isn't dangerous; it's perfectly safe. But you're walking off the previous green onto the next tee, and it's. You know, 10, 15 yards sometimes, so you, you can get round quickly because all of the walks from green to next tee have largely been eliminated. And so it's a, it's, 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 it's much more compact and um, easy to get round, and that just all adds up to quicker rounds at the end of the day. For for 50 or more years, you know, around the turn of the. 20th century that that was all that existed that's the only way golf courses were ever laid out is with the tee boxes sometimes the tee boxes were right on the greens you wonder how did anybody you know nobody got hurt as far as we know but you know that i agree that would be like the something that would really speed up the game but you know going back to our earlier conversations when golf courses are built for the wrong reasons not to produce a great golf course but to produce another desired effect that's when you get into these long stretched out courses that have no no purpose of being, you know, built. Hmm. Yeah, you're, you're, they were being designed to create as much sort of linear frontage to build houses up against. It was, it was simple. So you, so you, you didn't want it to be compact. And then you know, influence of golf carts as well meant that you know, people weren't walking those long walks; they were driving them. So they sort of. It all got lost in the wash. Yeah, I, I think golf. I think golf really truly lost its way when the golf carts became golf cart became so accessible to so many people that just enabled mm. developers and and it just made it so much easier to build golf courses on properties that didn't shouldn't have had a golf course on them and for purposes that were like I keep saying like beyond the scope of golf and the golf course kind of mm. just made that easier and more functional that's yeah, sort of an appendage right mm. right well let's get into some more uh heartening talk is um actually i don't know does donald Steele still practice is he still involved in design or is he retired i think he's pretty much retired uh-huh. uh, he's he was always a golf writer as well and he's still he's still writing um, books i think he was either finished or finishing uh a biography of Michael Benalek, who we knew very well from his amateur golf days and from RNA. What were the, some of the main things that you learned working with with Donald Steele? 
really to to respect the land and to the greens were the absolute priority and that if you if you find good green sites then the whole sort of come after that so you're not trying to impose design ideas on the ground you're trying to let the the design be inspired by the ground and by the by the green sites and that's something i think that he was he was taught, and the guy who taught him was was taught, I believe, by Tom Simpson, and you know, so it goes right back to the you know, the beginnings of the 20th century and the you know, the, the great times of British golf course architecture. So it's sort of a, a lineage, really, of that sort of respect for for greens being the well, Tom Simpson described it as the head of the comet. That's a that's a great way to put it. That's a nice mm. visual. So I think that was the the uh, the abiding thing, and yeah, he's an absolute gentleman as well, of course. So that's that's always a good influence, and in how to how to write properly, whether he achieved that or not. But he certainly improved my writing. I'm sure, yeah, yeah. I'm sure if you wrote <laughs> something, yeah, you'd know that he was going to see it. So you probably uh, did another round of editing. Days that, yeah, it was in the days that you'd sort of hand them out a printout, and it would just come back a sort of sea of red. <laughs> You're probably just like, well, you can just go ahead and rewrite this for me, Mr. Steele. <laughs> Pretty much that. Yeah. yeah. So, so what's, what was he like as a person? What was he like to work with? I was a very, a, a very gentle man. And you know, sort of quietly spoken and um, just a, somebody who, well, it's almost impossible not to respect him. Um, but uh, yeah, somebody who was prone to getting cross with airlines. <laughs> did he have some? Did he have some bad experiences flying? Well, I think if you fly as much as he's he's flown over the years, it's it's inevitable. But uh, like he, he could tell when airlines were flanneling, and you know, he, all he wanted to know was what was the problem and how long how long is the problem going to take to resolve. And, uh, he got very agitated. <laughs> I dare say he still does, but uh, if, if things don't go according to plan and he's not given a satisfactory explanation. But, yeah. Oh, that's rough because it's, it was, there was probably a period in time where flying was a little more comfortable and a little more uh, efficient that nowadays, you know, it depends, yeah, you know, if you, if you can ride in the front of the plane, it's probably different, but they, you know, they pack the way they pack people into planes and, and the schedules that they run is probably it's gotten to be a worse flying experience rather than a better one as time goes by. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. You and Martin must be cognizant sort of, of, of where you've taken your firm, you know, since you started it. I, I consider you, and I think most people do, is like really one of the top international golf firms uh, doing really high quality work and a firm who really understands the, the, the sanctity of golf and you, uh, people who do it the right way, you know, uh, with a light approach, understanding the history of golf, that must give you, whether you agree with me or not, I think that viewpoints out there, that must give you some satisfaction. Do you, are you cognizant of, of the place that the two of you have gotten your firm to? Well, it feels a bit surreal sometimes when you look at the portfolio that we have and, it's, a, it's an enormous sort of privilege and uh, responsibility to be working on them, and I suppose we know that we must be doing the right thing if we're sort of entrusted with those courses. But 
as you try not to dwell on that too much. You know, we have got our sort of core values that we try and stick to to respect and understand the heritage of the the great courses and to use all of that the knowledge that we gather researching them to inspire stuff going forward and it seems to be a, a formula that people really appreciate and you know, has helped us to get to where we've got to and again that, that's sort of building on the, the legacy that we were given working with Donald really it was, it was something that we we wanted to build on that and to become you know, even stronger on the heritage side of things so you've you've consulted and, and worked on seven courses in the rota championship rotor rotation including a little work at uh, Carnoustie and obviously some significant work at, at Portrush uh, which will be the host of the 2019 Open Championship. Yeah, that was a sort of a huge achievement for the club and you know, we'd been working with them for a few years before before anybody even took it seriously that the Open might go back there um, and that, that sort of involved showing that you could fit all of the open infrastructure into it, albeit with two new holes and dropping out the 17th and the 18th. But even then there was sort of a, a reluctance because of its sort of perceived remoteness. And the sort of turning point came when the Irish Open went there at very short notice and they, the attendances were enormous with, with no planning at all. And then I think the RNA went, you know what? I think this should happen, yeah. even if our sort of perceived model isn't correct. And then the Northern Ireland government sort of threw its hat in, and that's sort of how the that all came about. So and Martin really masterminded all of that work, and he's, I can't imagine how many days he spent out there during the last few years. But um, yeah, that's his his baby. But he was working with the club when it was still very much a a dream that it might happen. Right. And yeah, that, that's enormously satisfying, really. You mentioned that you don't see Martin that often. How does the dynamic in your office work? Um, we always felt that it was important to for every project to have one person responsible for it. Um, that if you were going to be a small company trying to compete with the big companies, then your call is important to us, please press one for this and press six for that and three different people working on the same project and none of them exactly knowing what was going on wouldn't really work for us and that people, if we sold ourselves on the basis that they knew exactly who they were dealing with and that one person would ultimately be responsible for it, it seemed to work. And the result of that is that we sort of operate in parallel, basically. You know, we do collaborate on uh, competitions and things, and you know, if we're you know, worried or puzzled or uncertain about something, then we'll bounce ideas off each other. But you know, basically, we, we have our own contracts and, and projects, and, 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 and we do them you know, sort of independently and, and meet up in the office when when our diaries allow and meet up socially from time to time as well. So it's very much a sort of parallel existence. Some people say, think it's odd, but it doesn't. 
it does actually make sense because the, there's no point in us both getting up at four o'clock in the morning to go to Heathrow to fly to Helsinki to look at two different projects. Yeah, it makes a lot more sense for one person to be doing work in Finland and the other one to be doing work in Iceland, and and, and that's the way it sort of works that you get your own sort of personal hotspots. It seems to be the the recipe for a, a a good marriage, so to speak. It seems to be working well. Uh, yes, yeah. I mean, this seem to be going from strength to strength. So yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, kind of keeping, I guess, Port Rush in mind and the other links courses that you've worked on. There's a real, I don't know how to put this. I guess it's there's a real honor to to work in those settings, isn't there? I mean, these are not just the the clubs themselves. You know, but you can go you can go down the list. You know, Troon, Litham, uh, Hoy Lake, Sandwich. These are great places. But you're in these unique ecological areas. These these dunes and linksland settings are almost sacred. And you're known. You know, your company's known as. And you've mentioned this before in our talk. How you want to honor the land? It, how do you approach doing? I guess I'm. What I'm trying to ask is like, how do you approach? making alterations to these golf courses in such sacred and sensitive environments. I mean, you must, you must think very long and hard about how you're going to m- make adjustments or move things around. Well, in terms of getting the environmental permits, you, you have to have a good operating understanding of how, how the system works and you, you have to work alongside um, sort of project ecologists to make sure that you're able to get permission for what you want to do, basically. Then you know, that involves creating habitat, avoiding the most sensitive habitat, obviously, and then you know, sort of tiptoeing your way around to find the best solutions with the, 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 the least sort of indentation of, of your footprint. <laughs> So you want to sort of have as, as light a touch as you can and um, yeah, offset anything that you do do with enhancements in other areas. Um, but taking the members along at the same time, and I think that's you know, people often forget that these sort of great old courses are, are members' courses that members are playing day in, day out, and you, know, you can't do anything other than take the members along with you. You've got to convince them that it's the right thing to do and um, build up a strong case. I think that's where the, you know, the the respect for the heritage is so important that people are members of those great old courses. Uh, maybe maybe they don't know in detail, but they, they've joined because it is a great old club and they want to be certain that it's been handled properly. So in the United States, over the last 20, 25 years or so, the, the word restoration has come to mean a lot. So many clubs who didn't realize their own heritage, their lineage going back to, to maybe the 1920s or earlier, began to become aware of who the architect was and what the original vision was. And they looked out and they don't, they don't see that in their golf course. So they would hire architects to come in and restore their course. And that kicked off a real sort of educational trend amongst architects to study the works of of Donald Ross and uh, A.W. Tillinghast, and you go down the list, George Thomas. So now restoration, 
is its own kind of cottage industry. And we know so much more about the design ideas of those guys from, from that era. Is, is there an equivalent to that, especially when you're going to these Lynx courses and doing work? I know the courses were really just staked out. There wasn't necessarily the same kind of design philosophy implemented in these Lynx settings. But is there an equivalent of trying to get in and understand what the original course and the 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 idea or concepts of of the whole existing holds were yeah i think what we try and do is is do a bit of sort of archaeology and go back and, and try and find as many old photographs as we can and try and piece together what things looked like and what changed and when and then if you can use you know, committee minute books or something to try and you find out the reasoning for doing it um, and then piecing it together. I don't think either Martin nor I would think that um, you know, restoration for restoration's sake is necessarily the right thing to do. I think understanding why things have changed and sometimes the things have changed for the right reason. And that if you then come along 80 years later and put, put it back exactly the way that it was when it wasn't right to start with, it doesn't really make any sense. So I think our, I think what we would try and do is to really understand you know, whether what has been changed was better beforehand and whether there's a strong enough case to put it back and and even just putting it back exactly as it was before. You know, so much has changed in the game that, that just straight restoration doesn't always make sense that you, you really need to sort of refresh and adapt and update to the modern game but using the the original intentions is very, very solid inspiration. I imagine that so that can be difficult to try to understand. Was, like, you know, where where is the value? Was it was it was this change? Did it make it better? You know, especially when you're talking about something that's decades old. Well, yeah, bunkering is highly subjective. You know. I think all that you all that you can do with bunkering is have a sort of solid rationale over the whole course and what you're trying to achieve with the bunker um, and you know, to stick to that rationale otherwise you just end up plunking bunkers sort of willy-nilly without any you know, clear vision of what it is it is that you're trying to do and I think that's what happens sometimes with the, the courses that have been heavily altered by successive committees is that you do just end up with a, a mishmash of positioning and style and size and and you know it's really sort of, sort of demeaned and degraded the the original design so you're trying to come up with you know, a respectful rationale for uh, restoring the bunker character um, is, is so important but I don't think it really means that you should be going back and just opening up every bunker that was filled in over time, regardless of its position. And I think that again comes so it comes into you know, where we started off on, and that's you know, to do with with width and what do you do to try to you know, temper the distances that players hit the ball. And if you just go back and restore bunkers that were very much sort of wing bunkers down either side of fairways and either sides of greens, it's just a license to the big hitters because everything is just wide open in front of them and they can just boom away. So, you know, trying to imagine 
you're, you're trying to do what Harry Colt did years ago. You just disappeared. Oh, you dropped out for a second oh, there. Oh, I, 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 you came back in on Harry Colt. <laughs> do you want to? Do you want to just uh, finish that thought again? That was probably pretty something profound that we didn't get on on record. I was just saying that put back the bunkers that were there. The the style in those days, because it was so much more difficult to hit the straight, was to was to have sort of wing bunkers most of the time, so down either side fairways really quite wide. Um, and similarly with big wide open green entrances, um, greens very much, and it's just a it's just a, a license to the big. I think it's much more important to think what would Harry Cole do next to the second that he would be doing what he did then, right? Um, that he would be narrowing fairway with bunkering and, and guarding fronts of greens much more and. Um, you would have a different approach some area of restoration just because it was there before speaking of Harry Colt uh, one of your upcoming projects which is pretty high profile is Hirono in Japan it was Charles Allison his partner actually who designed the golf course how does the your viewpoint on mm. uh, restoration play, is how will that play into how you approach this project uh, the principles are exactly the same that you're trying to same to that it looks like a faithful restoration it's a bit people won't be able to tell what's been updated and what's been restored so mm -hmm. our goal is for it to everything to look authentic and we've got some plans we've got photos from the from the day that the course opened and historic aerial photos and how things have evolved. So it's a, it's a mixture of restoration and, and refreshing, but finally you know, it, it has to look as if it. So, so Hirono will, you'll do the exact same thing at Hirono where you'll uh, examine what's there. You'll do the historical research and determine what works for the, for that club and and that property, and it may not be uh, a one to one accurate restoration of what was you know there on opening day. So the idea is to restore where appropriate and, and update where appropriate in a mm -hmm. in a style where at the end of it everything looks authentic and. And mm -hmm. of course, it's dated for the modern game rather than a, sort of a living museum. Yeah, no, no doubt. When you look at that, when you look at Hirono, what do you notice? What was what was Allison doing there? What are some of the the things that stand out about that architecture? I think Martin would be better placed to to comment on that. Uh -huh. um, I think I mean his his bunkering style was something that was. Renowned in, in in Japan on the courses that he did, um, but I think Martin would be better place to talk about the detail on on Hirono. Right. I don't know if you've uh, if you came across Tom Coyne's recent book that came out over the summer called A Course Called Scotland. I had him on the podcast. We talked about it. He went around the perimeter of of 
England and Wales and then up through Scotland and played every Lynx course, like a, over 100 Lynx courses in 60 days, <laughs> all the while trying to, it led up to uh, a, the open qualifier in 2015 at Brunsfields, which your firm also did work at Brunsfield, but that's where the open qualifier was. Toward the end of the trip, he's run down, he's out of gas, he's dispirited. And he, one of the last places that he visits before he goes back to Brunsfield is he goes over to Askernish. And it's in right. Askernish where you were recently, and your firm did the work there to kind of recover that course. But it's in Askernish where he has sort of an, an epiphany, a golf revelation, so to speak. He regains his strength. He falls in love with it. He plays it over and over. He just like goes into this this trance almost and plays and plays and plays until he can't play anymore. And it and it, it the light comes on for him and it gives him the energy that he needs. He calls it and he calls it in the book Askernishing. That's the and uh, but this place seems to have a mystical effect on everybody who goes there. What's tell us a little bit about Askernish and, and what it means to you. Wow. It's difficult to explain if you haven't been there, really. Um, I suppose it's as, as close as you'll find to the way that courses were were laid out 150 years ago. Um, and, and when it was first opened, it was you know, very much sort of rough and ready, and it was the living museum. But you know, I think it's it's become an awful lot more than that since it's opened. Um, but it was a course that was laid out over the land with the softest possible touch. So you know, there, there are quirky bits. The, the, the green sites are, because the greens are slow, are very extreme in places. But that's what we were given and that's what the land dictated. And there's been only the, the, the most minor sort of softening of some of the green surfaces since it first opened so it was laid out very much it was a lay of the land course so people can go there and see it and perhaps that's the you know what the guys that fell in love with when he went there and it's run i think there's one and a half green keepers maintaining it um, but they do they do have mechanical mowers rather than scythes so you know, it couldn't be much further from the 57 green keepers that have been at uh the uh, national for the last year, ready getting ready for the Ryder Cup, or the fourteen greens mowers that they had <laughs> to maintain the the fairways for the Ryder Cup. You know, they've, they've got one greens mower. Yeah, there'll be months and end where they don't mow the fairways at all. I, I think Askernish is as far as you can possibly get in golf from the national. Yeah, well, I mean that that's why I was over there. The um, the the RNA have a scholarship program for uh, greenkeeping or, or greenkeepers, course managers, superintendents who are doing further education and sort of learning um, sort of diplomas and things in, in golf greenkeeping at two of the colleges, Elmwood and, and Myerscope. And they give scholarships out to help people through. And part of that program is each year they take eight students out to Askinish and the reason that they do it is to take them because they're used to you know, the usual greenkeeping pressures and and everything sort of 
interrelating and you can't really make any sense of anything because it's all happening together so quickly and you go out to Askinish and it's sort of back to basics it's a, the golf course design is back to basics the maintenance is back to basics there's no pesticides used so you can look at how fine grasses respond when you don't have pesticides and you don't have irrigation you can see how the community interrelates with golf why golf is important to the community and what the community thinks of golf um, why it's important to the local economy why it's important to environmentally and how the environmental issues are important to the local economy and they go out and they're taught all about that and I teach them about the design aspects of it and take them out for to do a, an old Tom Morris moment where they go and find green sites and then they design three holes on absolutely beautiful lynx land and I've been doing it for three or four years now and probably five years actually and um, yeah, many, many students have gone through and it's a very rewarding experience for, for, for me and for, for them and I think for everybody involved. Well, just like you kind of coming of age in Dornoch and having that be your touchstone, I imagine that Askernish will be the touchstone forever for the for the kids who come through that program. How can you How can you go there and not have that change the way you look at golf going forward? I think definitely, yeah. yeah and that's, that's why they, they go to the expense of, of flying them all out there and putting them up in a hotel for a week. And you know, they could easily go to somewhere three miles off the M25 motorway in London and you know, try and do it there. But you know, it's a very definite reason for going out there to get them out, everybody out in, into an environment where you have to think differently about things rather than the same old way, same as it's always been, or the same as everybody's doing right now. Right. It's hope for, hope for the future, the way mm. I look at it. And it's not know. just kids either. I mean, there's guys that are in their late 40s um, doing the program, okay. the guys, the guys that have just suddenly thought, right, I, I want to learn more about the, not just the science, but the technicalities of it. You know, I'm good at doing the practical stuff, but I, I need... I need to understand more, and if I understand more in our qualifications, then they hope that they're. Well, I think they will be respected more by the golfers who don't sadly don't have enough respect for for greenkeepers out of lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. So, one more thing about Askernish is going back and and looking at books from you know decades ago. Askernish was always known. It was known as a as a nine hole course, basically. And so nobody thought much of it. I'm wondering what's your, why didn't, why did it take so long for somebody to climb up over the dunes and be able to look and see that there was a whole other golf course out there that people had apparently forgot about what took so long for that to be rediscovered? It's sort of political, really. Um, the, Huge areas of the, the north and the west of Scotland uh, historically have been owned by a small number of landlords and some looked after the land better than others. Many of them, you know, they're called absentee landlords, so they live in you know, very often down in, in England or in London or somewhere. 
Um, so there wasn't really very much investment going in. They were just places that they went out to to enjoy themselves. And when Scotland got devolution, they they sent they set up a land bank so that the residents or the islanders could buy their own estates, not just islanders but highlanders as well. And South Uist was one of the first ones that was able to to do a community buyout. So suddenly it was their island, and and they were the ones that really drove the the idea that um, creating or recreating the old Tom Morris course and restoring it would be good for the island economy. And again, that's one of the reasons that they go out there because that's how they are and they take people out there because of the 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 economic side of it. Mm-hmm. So so that's why it happened really. Nobody. I think it, with the old landlord, it probably just wouldn't have happened. Did and so, did so the what happened was the old the old Tom Morris course had been abandoned, and the nine hole course, which I'd played previously on a family holiday, yeah, was yeah, rudimentary in the extreme, and it just it was somewhere to play golf, nothing more. Um, and then it sort of became something rather more sophisticated as a result of the drive of the, of the people being masters of their own destiny. Well, then locally, was it, was, did they always know that the 18 hole or the, the, the Tom Morris section, the old, the, all the holes in the dunes that they existed? Did they always know that they were out there? I don't really know. I think they knew that there was a course there. And I suppose they knew that it hadn't been plowed under or, or blown up. So, Yes, I would guess that it never really crossed their mind, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was so beyond what they could afford to do that it, it, was, it was a bit like wondering if you could swim to the moon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, they had the little nine-hole course, and they, you know, they, they struggled to look after that. And it was only you know, it, the. the the resurrection took place because many, many dozens, probably hundreds of people volunteered their time to help them do it, to get the thing off, off and running. They didn't mm-hmm. do it by borrowing money and so on. Not that it cost a huge amount, but the machinery companies were supplying machines. Greenkeepers were you know, taking holidays to come and help hand cut areas so that they could start cutting green sites down and so on and so on. So it was a very sort of that's a, a heartwarming story, really, of, of golf clubbing together to do the right thing. Absolutely, absolutely. So, kind of with that with that sentiment in mind, when when you look out at golf course architecture, what's happening around the world right now? What do you see? Is it a heartwarming story? Is it? Uh, have we come out of? Uh, have we have we rid ourselves of, of some of the bad practices that we spoke about earlier? What do you see, you know, when you contemplate the state of architecture and design? Well, I think the move to be softer on the land that's undoubtedly happened in the last few years uh, is is a good thing. Um, I, I still suspect that the the growth of golf is being hampered because this 
courses are still being built, especially in emerging markets, for 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 far too much. There's not enough discipline in saying, well, uh, well, I'll give you an idea as part of the lecture that I gave last week. But if you move a million cubic yards of dirt in pounds, actually in dollars, that costs about in on UK fuel rates. That's about a million dollars of fuel to move a million cubic meters of dirt to build to build the whole course. Um, and you can build nine holes with everything included for that amount of money if you have you know, a reasonable site and you don't go crazy. And if you start doing the mathematics about how much per round, you know, how many rounds you have, first 100,000 rounds, that's $10 a round, isn't it? First 100,000 just to pay the fuel bill if, if it's a course that's moved huge amounts of earth, whereas if you've moved almost nothing, then that's £10 that goes towards profit rather than goes towards paying off the debt. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I still think there's a bit of profligacy in, in design and construction where too much is being done and you know, the result is the, the bill at the end is, is too big and that sort of means that the game remains unaffordable for too many. So there ended the sermon. <laughs> <laughs> so you think, you think though that the trend is, is in the right direction or, and more designers and design firms are becoming cost conscious or is, do you, or is, is it just going to be a, a situation where some people have your point of view and, and there's just too much money and motivation in, uh, out there to do other more expensive projects. Well, I think I, I suppose what, I, what I'm saying is that you know I wish that there was more effort put into trying to be more economic in what's being done because fundamentally, if the golf industry is to continue to succeed, it needs more golfers, and, and building more and more expensive courses isn't isn't the way of doing it. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes building courses that are that may not be in the top hundred or never destined to be in the top hundred is the best thing for golf and if it means that people can afford to play the courses and then and enjoy our great game you know it's still it still remains the only game that people can you know, great great grandfathers can play with their great grandchildren you can't go out and play squash or tennis or go motor racing or mountain biking Mm-hmm. Golf's the only game you can do it. Yeah, you can you can get lycra though, and and get on a bike. You may not go fast and or look good, but <laughs> I suppose so. Yes. Yeah. Well, as we close out here, I've got a couple of quick questions for you. One of the questions I ask uh, all my guests, or most of my guests, is about uh, their their peers, their contemporaries. So the question is, what what's the best modern golf course? that you've seen or the golf course, the modern course built within the last 20, 25 years or whatever that you like the best. It doesn't have to be the high, highly rated, but something that you are particularly fond of. That's not your own work. God, I wish you'd asked me to think about that before I started, <laughs> before I came on. So the pause, is that because you're, you're trying to go through your catalog of courses or are you going to try to be diplomatic about how you answer it? 
Notice that I'm not very good at instant retrieval. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm a great admirer of, of King's Barnes uh, because it was a, a triumph of mass earth movement. Um, but I think what Mark Parsonen did in, at Castle Stewart by going on to build uh, his next course but to really focus even even more on the greens and the green surrounds. You know, I've got great respect for, for that, for him, and for the, what he's done on both of those projects and the, the course that he's created, uh, particularly at Castle Stewart. Okay, good. That will put a check in Castle Stewart. So that's the first vote for Castle Stewart, not that we're keeping track. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, of course, finish the call and think, oh, why didn't I say such and such? And <laughs> that's, that's, okay. That's, okay. that's a good answer, though. That's a good answer and well thought out. Let's say I'm an investor and I have um, unlimited resources to, to access any available property in the world, and I want to work with you. And I'm going to say, Tom, tell me where you want to go build a golf course. Is there a particular site that you know of or a, or a region in the world that you would love to build a golf course more than any other place? Well, I think, I think every golf course architect would say as a starting point, you would want to work on sand. And I would definitely want to be working beside the sea. So wherever it is, um, ideally cool season grasses, I suppose, mm-hmm. beautiful backdrop, sandy soils, yeah. ideally dunes. Okay. I mean, that, there's, a, there's a lot. Of, that covers a decent amount of territory. Is there a particular oh. place that you think has potential that maybe hasn't been explored yet that you know of? Well, there's another site immediately along, alongside Askamish, which is every bit as good as the first one. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I'm not arguing the economic case yet, but uh, yeah, that that's just such a beautiful place to go, and the whole experience going of getting there and going out there and being there to me is you know it's it's one of the most magical places that I've I've ever been to. So I suppose that would be my answer. Sure. Yeah. Are are you intrigued uh, about the prospect of the development of the Cool Links? That's, you know, Doorknock is, is, as we've said before, very close to you, very personal. Does that project intrigue you? Uh, it does, and it goes down to the side of Loch Fleet, which is you know, just one of the most beautiful places that I've ever been to, and you know, it's got great sort of family, sentimental value to me there. So, you know, I did, you know if, it, if it happens, I hope that it's a, a great success for the for the whole sort of local economy, um, and I hope also that it sort of looks after the land well, which I'm sure it will do. Right. You know, I think the, the big problem with the Doric area is, is always going to be you're getting people to come up and stay there, but, um, particularly international travellers. They just come up from Inverness, and then there's a few that stay in Doric, but the majority just come up, play, and go again. And I'm still not convinced until... There's better accommodation that, that people will come and stay more, and that's a fear for the economic viability of it. But um, you know, I'm I'm not the big businessman that, yeah, as the guys behind it are. But um, 
you know, I just I really hope that it's a great success and it'd be great for the local economy if it is. And you're from you think the site has the potential to produce a a course that will you know be worthy of being in that area next to Dornock? I, I don't really know it well enough. I did actually, our family stayed in Embo during the Carnegie Shield a couple of years ago and I was walking the dogs on the site every day and uh, it was quite hard to get get a feel for it without a, sort of a, without the, the routing plans and the, knowing the extent of the property. So it's, it's very hard to, to make an assessment. I think people want to get up and, and see the sea and see the views and everything. Uh, and so long as the site allows that to happen, then... You know, as I said, it's just, it's such a beautiful place. But if you're sort of down in behind, there's a very big coastal dune. If there's too many holes that are down behind the coastal dune, then you know, it may not have quite as much sort of scenic attraction as as other courses. But uh, I suspect that it does have the views, though, because people seem to be very positive about it. I guess it remains to be seen whether the, it'll actually get built as well. There's some, you know... The- environmental and permitting obstacles still to be cleared i think yeah i think the government's uh, there's a thing called calling in so it was approved and then the government decided it was going to have another look at it which doesn't always bode very well if it's been approved Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's yeah it gets back to the environmental laws that that the 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 presumption is against development unless you can prove that it's in the national interest um, and you know, I think that's what you know, they've gone into. You've gone to great lengths to show that economically, it's in very much in the interests of the north of Scotland and for employment and you know, business and so on. Um, I suspect that they're wanting to look and look more closely at the case that's been put forward. But um, you know, I hope that it doesn't mean they're going to stick a, a stick in the spokes. You, one of the one of the major projects your firm uh, did was the undertaking of the really kind of a redesign of Turnberry. There was a lot of a lot of changes that were made to that golf course. Um, I'm curious, though. I have to ask: Did you? And then it was then it was obviously purchased by our current president. Did you have any interactions with with him at that time before he was president? Absolutely, he was intimately involved with it. Mm-hmm. And, what were yeah. your impressions of of him as a as uh, an owner and developer? Well, that, that he was very knowledgeable about golf and, and full of ideas and uh, very passionate and wanted, you know, from the start, he, said, he just said that he wanted to, to make the most of the real estate that was available. And, you know, that was his, uh, his, his vision to make... The, the sort of theatre of going to Turnberry is as dramatic as possible, and that's with him. That's the plan that we came up with. And when it came to you know, at no point did he quibble about anything. He just you know, he wanted to do the best possible job and agreed what the design was going to be. We got prices from contractors and we went off and built it. It was it, so in terms of as a. As a client, he's sort of well-informed, well-funded, and fully committed. The guy that the person that you dealt with is, does he seem like the same person that you see on the news now? <laughs> um, I'd 
have another comment on that, I think. Okay. <laughs> I can't imagine that he is. <laughs> Perhaps not. One, okay. I'll, I won't, I won't press. Um, one last question. I, I think I saw on your website that you have a potential project uh, going on in the island of St. Helena. Mm-hmm. That's very intriguing. That seems like a really interesting place to be involved with that island and that history. What can you what can you tell us about the prospects of that course or what might happen there? Um, that's an absolutely fascinating project, and it's a, it's not unlike Askanish in some ways, and that it's a very much tied up with you know, socio-economic issues that. Um, St. Helena was a, an uninhabited island until the days of the British Empire and it became used as a staging post, post for ships going round the Cape around the Cape going to India um, because the Dutch controlled the Cape and they, they were the taxes that they charged were, were very high so the island was used for um, growing hemp for making ropes and um, trees for, for replacing masts and fresh water and stores and brothels and you know, everything that ships needed going around the world. Um, and, and as the, so it became, you know, it was very much part of the empire, but as time sort of overtaken it, it's been left and very isolated with you know, chronic social issues and basically being funded by the British taxpayer. The British taxpayer was funding the, the last Royal Mail ship of the British Empire to take goods and people back and forth from South Africa. And then it was decided that it, it really had to have an airport. And if the airport was going to be built, then it had to be used to regenerate the island economy. And the the project that we're involved with is sort of tied up with that in that they're trying to, but all of it's sort of designed to be ecotourism. And the course that we were, we're working on is a course that would be grazed um, because there are ground nesting birds that are endemic to the island. It's sort of like the Galapagos of the, the, the South Atlantic, although it's, it's almost level with the equator, so it's not South Atlantic in the way that uh, Tristan de Cunha or, or the Falkland Islands are. Um, so the, their idea is that they want to try and get people to come and see all of the the unique things that are on the island and the, the, the history with Napoleon being taken out there to uh, you know, as, as a prisoner to, to serve his time until he died and his house is still there and all in. The fortifications that the British built to stop the French from coming to try and get him back are, are still there. So it's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating project, and the golf is sort of part of a, a hotel and a sort of villa development that that will employ and bring the islanders back who've left and over the previous sort of five decades, and with a view to halting the decline and starting the regeneration of the island so that it can actually function under its yeah, under its own sails as it were is that what's the property like it look when i i looked at the island on google maps it looked like the outer shoreline 
part of the island is all rock or very it didn't look like there was it looked like you'd have to build up on a higher piece of ground yes it's it i think it's got some of the highest sea cliffs in the world around it it's basically two volcanic craters and the the outer sides of the two craters the two craters are joined the outer sides have sort of fallen off into the sea so you've got this you know, it's like it's like an eight with the tops of the the top and the bottom of the eight knocked off uh-huh. with cliffs all around and the, the sites sort of a series of of plateaus with fairly steep ground in between each of the plateaus but with just magnificent views down over the sea and um yeah, lots of interest and um, sort of folds and crumples but yeah, it's steep and the idea is that it's a course that you would be ferried up to the top and you would sort of helter your skelter helter skelter your way back down gradually with a few slightly uphill holes a few levels but predominantly playing down the hill to the clubhouse at the bottom it sounds fascinating yeah. I, I hope I hope you get to build it well I think it, things seem to be it's been stuck in limbo for two or three years because there was a problem with the the airport and commercial planes weren't able to land on it because of wind shear, but they seem to have got that sorted out, or at least they found planes that can actually land safely. Um, but there, there seems to be new people that are um, keen to invest. Um, the idea being that many of the people that have properties in South Africa may well choose to go and live there because it will always be an awful lot safer than the way South Africa is turning out to be. Yeah. yeah. And and for the rest of us, that is true destination golf. Yes. <laughs> to go to St. Helena. <laughs> well, it was certainly a destination for me when I went there because it was, yeah. a, it was th- three days, to, well, fly down to Cape Town and then you wait a day and then it's five days on the boat to get to the island. And then you have eight days on the island, including the day that you arrive and the day you leave, another five days to get back. And all in all, it's a three weeks, a three week trip to go to spend eight days on the island. But, well, uh, until they get the airport figured out, that, that golf course better be well, really good. <laughs> well, <laughs> it certainly will be unique, that's for sure. I'll leave others yeah. to decide if it's very good. But, uh, yeah. Tom, thanks for doing this. You were a good sport. We talked a lot of, got covered a lot of ground, and I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Cheers. Okay, well, that was the very thoughtful and reserved and unflappable Tom McKenzie speaking to us from his office in West Sussex in the south of England. There's probably nobody hotter in international golf architectural circles right now than McKenzie and Ebert. There's a lot of heat around them at the moment, so it was great to talk to Tom and, and hear what he and Martin Ebert are up to. On the production side, I know about an hour in... Uh, things kept breaking up. Our connection wasn't great. I think it was the ghost of Harry Colt and Charles Allison reaching out for us because every time we, we brought them up, brought their names up, the Skype connection dropped out. And once we got past that, it cleared up again. So that was kind of weird. Uh, also, uh, I mentioned Tom Coyne's book, A Course Called Scotland, and talked about how he went to Askernish and found redemption playing the golf course over and over and over again and how he called it Askernishing in the book. That word actually belongs to former U.S. Poet Laureate Billy Collins, who wrote a poem about Askernish and came up with the word Askernishing. So we want to make sure we get proper attribution on that to Billy Collins. I like what Tom said about restoration and thought it was very intriguing about how they don't go in into an older course and try to do a pure restoration necessarily. They, they really analyze what had been done over the years 
look at it in, in phases and stages and, and make a decision about what has worked and what hasn't and will restore it to the obviously the look of the original course, but they're not afraid to uh, adopt and incorporate changes that have been made after the opening date, which is different than the way many United States golf course restorationists work. You know, there are different camps, of course. Some term that a sympathetic restoration, uh, and others are kind of hardcore and, and will want to want to put the golf course back to a very specific point in time, more or less exactly as it was. Of course, with updated, you know, drainage and, and turf and infrastructure. But uh, different ways to look at that, and I thought it was kind of refreshing that Tom just kind of said, you know, well, you know, we we don't necessarily do a full faithful restoration every time, which can be kind of a, a perilous position in a way when you're working on heritage courses, links courses that are very, so historic and have so much history behind them and date back to the 1800s. And not only that, you're working in dunes. These these dunes are sacred. There, there's only so much links land in the world, and sort of start moving greens and bunkers and dunes around. Uh, you know, I was kind of, I was asking him if, if he ever felt conflicted about that, and of course, of course, they, they do. It's a difficult decision to, to maneuver new holds through dunes or to eliminate things that have been there for so long and have so much history behind them. But you know, from Tom's perspective, it really comes down to what the club wants. And whether, you know, you can get through all the, the difficult environmental permitting and sensitive uh, environmental impact issues that they have to deal with. But I thought that was a very interesting uh, way to look at it and great to get Tom and, and Martin's perspective on that. If you're enjoying this podcast, there are a couple things you can do to really help me out. And one is to give it a rating. The other is to let other people know about it. Uh, share it around on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you follow me on Twitter, you can always retweet these episodes when you see them come up. If you're not on Twitter or Instagram, go ahead and sign up. You don't have to post anything, but it's a great way to get information. You can follow me at Feed the Ball and use this as a portal into so many other really interesting Twitter accounts and, and perspectives on golf and golf course architecture. It's it's Twitter can be really horrible and really shitty, but it can also be really great as a source of information and, and entertainment too. So go ahead and give me a follow at Feed the Ball. Give me some feedback. Leave a review. Go to feedtheball.com and leave some comments if you find something interesting. I want to thank Tom McKenzie for joining me today. I appreciate that. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks as always to the Sun Dogs. I've got more interviews lined up, so stay tuned. And until next time when we do this again, cheers. <laughs>